Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Dr. Vic Sedlak. Dr. Sedlak is a training and supervising psychoanalyst at the British Psychoanalytical Society and in private practice in the north of England. He joins us today to talk about his book, The Psychoanalyst's Superegos, Ego Ideals, and Blind Spots, The Emotional Development of the Clinician, published by Routledge 2019, part of their series, New Library of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Sedlak, welcome to the program. Thank you. So our podcast begins with what I call the impossible question, but we ask every author this, as far as we can know them, what were the motivations for writing the book? What made me write the book? Yes. It's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, and interestingly, it goes right back to my days as a clinician. I wasn't a psychoanalytical clinician when I began. I was a behaviour therapist because um, I was a, trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, but I had an experience where I was treating a patient who had uh, agoraphobia. And she had agoraphobia because she was very anxious about going out and seeing someone um, who um, was an amputee, had a missing limb. And I treated her behaviourally, and so I made her a tape, you know, a relaxation tape, and... Oops. I made her a relaxation tape, and... um, Uh, got a hierarchy of things that she feared and I saw her for a session and she came in and she said that tape's marvellous you know Um, I play I got all my girlfriends round and we all lay on the floor and listened to it and we just couldn't stop laughing and I was shocked by this but at that time I I knew a psychoanalyst (laughs) and uh, who worked in the same department as I did and I told him about this and he started laughing and he said, can't you see, Vic, she's castrating you. She's castrating what you're giving her. No wonder she's worried about um, meeting an amputee. And I realised then that this patient was very subtly um, taking the mickey out of me just about all the time and uh, metaphorically castrating me. Um, and I then began to go to this person's um, clinical seminar and I found that I had some ability in um, in understanding patients when my colleagues presented them but as in the case I've just described I seem to have a blind spot it's sometimes said isn't it that other patient other people's patients are 
much easier than our own. And this is what I found. And this is what I got interested in. Uh, another example is I then began some supervision of my own young clinical psychologists, uh, a group of them, very bright people, full of nous and um, acumen about human beings. Put them in a clinical situation and it's as though they lost 90% of that um, <laughs> clinical acumen. And I got very interested in this. And, and I got interested in psychoanalysis and I had the same experience. I first of all trained at the Tavistock Clinic in London and then at the British Society. How I noticed in clinical seminars, I could very often pick up what was happening in my colleagues' um, uh, treatments of their patients. But I seemed to have a blind spot when it came uh, to my own treatments. And I got, this is what I got interested in. And I thought, when we get into a clinical situation, something happens to us. We can't think as freely as we normally do. Um, the pressure, the emotional pressures of a clinical psychoanalytical encounter are very often too much for us to be able to contemplate and we become limited in what we allow ourselves to see. And you could say the book is trying to understand why that is. So that's that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> Great. Well, this is good because in, in the story there, there's a lot of... Um, uh, parts of the book that, that address the story. So let's just, um, let's set the table for the listener before we get into the, the details there. For the listener who's an analyst or not an analyst, how are you differentiating between the super ego and the ego ideal? I suppose quite classically that the ego ideal is what we aspire to. So as clinicians, we aspire to be helpful, to be kind, to play a part in, the, in our patient's development. And the superego is what judges whether we um, meet the, the standards set by our ego ideal. Um, and I argue that sometimes we can be very, very critical of ourselves, um, that we fall far short of our ego ideal. And it's at those points that we might want to turn a blind eye to what we could potentially think. Um, I'm going a bit further than you asked me, but it, it's that distinct, that you asked me about the distinction between the superego and the ego ideal. and one is what we aspire to and the other is what judges us about whether we hit our aspirations or not. Great. So in the story of the, the girl and laughing and getting the tape and laughing, you, you talk about this in the book, um, that patients attempt to destroy our ego ideal. I think some patients, um, now do Yes, that's an interesting way of putting it. 
I think some patients do precisely that. Um, they want to make us feel that we can't be of any help to them, um, that we're picking on them, for example. But I think it's broader than that. I'm not just addressing the patients who, out of envy or out of unconscious guilt or whatever, set out to destroy the analyst's um, sense of self-worth. I think um, when we set up an analytic treatment, we say to the patient, you know, come and lie on the couch and say whatever comes into your mind. So we are really asking them to come and be themselves and that we will allow this. We encourage it. We don't want them to censor themselves. And so they come and they express their character, their personality, warts and all. And our reaction to that, I think, is sometimes uh, doesn't meet our ego ideal. I, I give an can I give an example of that? Um, oh, of course, that'd be very helpful. It's the, it's the first example I give in the book. It's on the first page, I think, and I struggled about whether to write this or not because the situation is a patient comes in and she sees that I'm limping as I walk to my chair. And she makes a um, she makes a comment about this, which is very wounding to me in the situation. I won't go into why. And I have a reaction to this, of which when I came to write it up, I thought I'm going to change this. I'm going to lie about what my reaction was, because my spontaneous reaction was. Um, misogynistic and very pejorative and I then describe how the session progressed with my having forgotten this very she only said a phrase and I didn't of course respond I just had this horrible thought about her which I didn't say and I then completely forgot about it when I came to write the session up it came back to my mind. That's how the session began. And then I wrote the rest of the session up and I started kicking myself because what she brought to the session was that she was having an important interview that day where she'd have to make a presentation. She was aware of some of the weaknesses in her presentation and she was really extremely anxious that the panel of interviewers would see the weaknesses and would absolutely go for her and want to make her feel there's no chance that she could get the job. Now, and I thought, if only I'd allowed myself to know um, how I reacted when she saw my weakness and attacked me, if only I could have kept that in my head I could have helped her so much in that session. I could have shown her that her anticipation of the panel's um, sadism to her was a projection of her sadism 
to me. I could have helped her contain her sadism in a way that it wouldn't be projected. And I'd failed. And the reason I'd failed was because my reaction to her fell so below my ego ideal. I mean, I'm still ashamed of my response because it does fall below my ego ideal that I like to think that I, you know, I'm a decent person and not misogynistic. And yet here, it, it was a sort of spontaneous reaction. And if only I could have held on to it, my work with her in that session would have been so much better. And I think this happens quite a lot, not perhaps as dramatically as that, but that's what I'm trying to explore, why we limit our natural uh, sort of acumen and, um, and can't think very clearly sometimes in a clinical situation. Well, yes, I mean, I have high identification with, <laughs> with that, <laughs> certainly. And there's a, um, so, you know, I, I, when I, I read the book through, um, there's certain passages that stay with me that I would never have to go back to and make notes um, to achieve my ego ideal of a perfect interview. Um, but there was one um, passage which I really stayed with me and I think can help get us into this, which is that the drive to heal, so the, the, the analysts, the therapist drive to heal is inseparable from our own anxiety-ridden sadism of primitive levels of the mind and that our wish to heal and cure annuls our own fears. And I, I read that and I thought, is this in a sense, a reaction formation? Do we become analysts to, to not be sadistic, to not deal with the primitive areas of our mind? And yet in this story, had you allowed it, it would have been curative. Yes, yes, that, that's very well put. Um, I suppose that way of thinking about um, what what we do as clinicians and why we do it, it's partly informed by my um, my reading of Melanie Klein and um, the depressive position and the um, where that she has a theory about how concern for others develops, which is that we're we realize that we're being sadistic to our the breast or our caretaker um, and then we realize that this is the same person that we also love and care for and depend upon and we then want to make reparation and there are some studies I understand which show that people who go into the helping profession tended to have depressed caretakers presumably that they couldn't cure and that this is one drive but even if we didn't have a depressed mother for instance um i think there is a um a wish to cure which i don't think we should be ashamed of one of my one of the greatest teachers i had was a woman called hannah siegel and mm -hmm. she said as a child i was known as somebody who was a do-gooder and i'm not ashamed of this i 
I do want to do good. <laughs> um, I, one of the things I quote in the book is Suzanne Langer, who says that for an analyst to be a proper clinician, he needs it needs to be a calling, a passion, and a vocation. And then she examines where does the word vocation comes from, from the Latin vocare, to call. And she says it's the calling of the superego. Um, and of course, the calling of the superego, you know, could be rather harsh. You have to cure. If you don't cure, you're a complete failure. Um, and I think that's one of the things we have to struggle with. Um, there's a colleague of mine, now long dead, called Tom Main, who wrote in a very famous um, paper, um, God help the patient who frustrates an overzealous therapist. You know, that <laughs> you don't know what sort of treatment they might get. Um, and um, But it's, it's Hannah Siegel who taught me a lot about... Um, having passion, but being able to tolerate failure and to be relatively kind to oneself. So one isn't driven because you, you can get sadistic about wanting to cure, you know, I'll bloody cure, cure you even if it kills you <laughs> kind of, um, you know, a really zealous um therapist and I think we can all get into this where we kind of keep making the same interpretation and if only the patient would get this then they'd be cured but without realizing that this is actually damaging um, so I think we do need to be aware of why we do this work and being aware of a sadist uh, of, of a a sort of neurotic need to repair, I think is, is very important. It's one of the reasons that one of the chapters in my book is called Contemplating Analytic Failure. Mm -hmm. Because I think we have to come to terms with the fact that um, we individually fail as analysts with some patients and we have to live with that in some ways we fail with all patients you know our, our blind spots are such that we another analyst would have achieved different results um, but also I argue that you know maybe psychoanalysis isn't a, a cure-all um, there are some people who I don't think can benefit from it and if we can come to terms with that we might not be you know that zealous well i've i've often thought that it would be very i think helpful and interesting to have a psychoanalytic journal but a journal of case failures yes not of case successes um case failures and you and and there was actually a book written in 2003 on analytic case failures i haven't read it i just i just know the title and uh -huh. remembered it when I read, um, and, but you also say that it, that the consideration of failure is an essential aspect of the clinician's development. Um, 
Can you can you talk about how it's essential for the clinician's development? Yeah, well, for instance, if we can tolerate not understanding rather than think we've got to understand, you know, we might give more more space to more free associations. Um, and if we can, um, Michael Parsons has a, a, a statement that Bion suggests that we abandon memory and desire and try to go into a session without the desire to cure um, or the memory of a previous successful interpretation. And he then writes, but this is so dangerous because what if nothing comes to our minds um, during a session and then we have to live with failure? But I think the ability to tolerate that I might not be able to help does keep the mind open to new possibilities. And it also means that we seek help from others. Um, I don't know whether you know that for me to be registered in the British Psych uh, Psychoanalytical Society's roster, um, I have to show that I have at least 30 hours of supervision a year. So I have a fortnightly supervision slot with a colleague where I discuss my work. And I think that's part of a, an emotional development, that you accept that you've got your blind spots. And I think there's a, a sort of modesty that the clinician needs to have. Oh, uh, uh, well, I, yes. I mean, I, I, I couldn't and I wouldn't work without supervision. And I think that that brings us back to the, the story you told where, especially in supervision groups, where everyone else can see what's missing in the case but yes. the actual analyst. But we all have that experience. Mm. And you, you shared a lovely uh, quote from Edna O'Shaughnessy, which is that patients tend to discern unconsciously the extent of their analyst's understanding. And then, I really love this, they pitch their material beyond that point um, in, 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 in a way to engage the analyst in the struggle um, that they themselves are not able to work through. And with supervision, this, this really caught my eye, that supervising someone with, say, a long, 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 deep personal analysis that in a sense should give them an advantage versus someone that may not have a long personal analysis that it really doesn't change the supervision because the material has been pitched just beyond where they are. Yes, yes. I, I, um, I think I say that, I'm not sure I put it in the book, but she said that to me after she'd supervised a case of mine brilliantly. And I said, oh, I feel so bad about that. I'm this patient's analyst, not you. And she said, don't worry. You know, if if I was with the patient, he'd be pitching his material beyond my understanding. But she also added that she didn't think that the patient did this out of spite or, you know, a wish to defeat the analyst. And this is one of the things, there's another uh, aspect of the book, which is about working through in the countertransference. 
Um, and my argument is that there are some issues that the patient can't work through and they use the analytic space in order to project that very difficulty into the analyst and the analyst then has to struggle with it. And as I say, they don't do this out of spite. They do this, it's an unconscious attempt to use another mind to help them work through something that they can't work through themselves. The, the example I give, and again, I could be ashamed of this, is of a patient who hated paying for missed sessions. He then had to miss a session because his mother was dying. He then comes and I ring him and his partner lets me know that he won't come for his session because he's with his dying mother. I, I then ring him to say I got the message and um, I, I offer my um, condolence. The next session he comes and he tells me how much he appreciated my phone call and he told his partner about it and his partner said, yeah, but he'll still charge you for the missed session. And the patient says, of course, I said, of course he won't charge me. And suddenly I'm in a terrible dilemma. I've always charged him for missed session. It's always been a massive bone of contention. And I feel I've been ambushed. And I think I've got, I don't understand what's going on, but he really has pitched something beyond my understanding. Um, and I did decide to charge him feeling utterly awful about it. And he, um, he thought it was utterly awful. And his brother was a solicitor and he sort of hinted that he'd had a legal opinion about this. But I stuck to my guns and he then told me that he, the funeral was just two days after his mother's death. So before the session where I made it clear that I would charge him. Um, and he said he, as the coffin was being lowered into the ground, he had the thought, I wonder what's in her will. And he felt utterly terrible about having this thought. And suddenly it made sense that I was exposed and had to work through my, what I felt was greed and uncaringness and um, total selfishness um, because he couldn't work through it himself. And when we spoke about this, one of the thoughts he'd had was that when he was caring for his mother, he'd sometimes have the um, a picture of throwing tea in her face. And it became clearer that one of the things he couldn't work through was how ambivalent he was about caring for her. He did, in fact, offer good care for her. Um, but it was rather do-gooding without... Um, having worked through also his sadism. Um, so he'd really pitch some, I think that's the best example I give mm -hmm. of having something pitched into you, which, which really takes a long time to work through. But 
I do think that it's the patient's prerogative to do that. That's that's what we open ourselves up to when we offer analytic treatment. And sometimes I think we fail, um, you know, to do that. We do say, of course, I won't charge you or, you know, the equivalent. Um, but patients are generous and they'll bring the problem back, I think. Well, yes. Yeah, so the uh, two two thoughts on this, the idea of the pitching, which is in the book, and then the story here of, of his, you know, wanting to throw tea the throwing, it felt to me as if it was a, a version of Fort Da, right? The, the game uh-huh. of throwing and vanishing that is, you know, begins the story of the beyond the pleasure principle and the idea of repetition compulsion, which is why it's so primitive. This, the, you know, Freud calls it the perfect game, here gone, <laughs> here gone, and, and the returning. But you, the, the analysts... Uh, excuse me, the patient's prerogative, the patient's rights, which are generally talked about as well. They've got the right to confidentiality and all these other things. But it's, you say it throughout the book, the patient's right to a full transference, the right to exhibit themselves in full. It's very, um, it's just very powerful. Yes. I, and the sort of guiding principle of that is, I suppose, lies in my understanding of what is an analysis for. And um, and I use, I'm not sure whether I quote this in the, I think somewhere in the book I will say it, because it had such a profound influence on me. Beyond's um, clarification of what he thought an analysis was for, when he says, The aim of an analysis is to introduce the patient to the person they'll spend all their life with, namely themselves. (laughs) So he's saying if we know ourselves well, we're probably in a better position, a more resilient position um, to, you know, suffer what life has to throw. And I think I'm adding well, we also we need to know ourselves, but we also need to tolerate ourselves, and that's why I keep saying it is the patient's prerogative to bring themselves, you know, warts and all, um, their good bits and their bad bits, and it's for us to try to find a way of talking to the patient about who they are, and the aim is. Um, it's another of, it is something I quote in the book, where Beyond writes, there's a difference between suffering from something and being able to suffer it. And in the latter sense of suffering, he means to accept it, like Jesus says, suffer little children to come to me, allow them. If we can allow ourselves to know about ourselves, I think we're in a a much healthier position. Um, but can I give you an example of of that? Yes, please. Um, it's a made up example, but if you can imagine somebody who's envious, and he's envious when a colleague of his say, let's say, writes a book, and he expresses his envy by 
saying to other colleagues, you know, his book's not very good. I, I wouldn't buy it if I were you. Um, and then he has an analysis. It doesn't have to be an analysis, actually. He could go and see Othello and see Argo and think, hmm, that reminds me of a bit of me. Uh, I can be nasty when I see somebody who has things that I wish I had. But say he has an analysis and his anal analyst over time shows him that when the analyst has uh, an interesting interpretation, the, the patient becomes mocking or destroys it in some way or quickly assumes it to be his own insight. And slowly the patient realises that he's envious and he's able to suffer his envy. And then he might be in a better position. He might be able to say, my colleague has written a book and I'm envious of it because I think it's good and I wish I could emulate him. So analysis hasn't cured him of his envy, but it's made him able to contain it and to suffer it rather than suffering from it. And I think that can be life changing. So, for example, in following that up, if he then does write a book, he won't, ex he won't be very anxious that everyone will tear it to bits because he's containing his own envy. He won't be projecting it into the external world. He might become less paranoid about the external world. So that's, I think that's central to my view of how analysis can help. Um, and I think that, so I'm glad that you brought in Iago, because that, um, I don't know if it was Beyond or who, but this Shakespeare and the language of achievement. Yes. Um, and um, what is the language of, uh, of achievement? Um, I think it's, it ties to something else you say in the book, but can you explain the language of achievement first and then we'll move on? Beyond uses it, doesn't he? Um, that the analyst needs to speak in the language of achievement. Um, trying to remember exactly how he puts it. Um, he, he writes, um, he's looking at Keats' ability to, um, to not know, um, not to rush to knowledge and to conclusions, but to be able to keep an open mind. And he then speaks of being able to speak with the language of achievement, um, rather, which I think is, in my understanding of it, the achievement is of finding something out from one's own experience, rather than rushing to knowledge because you think you ought to know. Um, and I think it requires tolerance of oneself. Um, and that's part of what I mean by the emotional development of the analyst. Um, I, th I think part of the emotional development of an analyst is that he becomes much more tolerant of what he doesn't know rather than proud of what he doesn't know. 
So then that um, leads me then to the, the, the chapter on from dread to anxiety. The, you write about an undefined but lurking sense that nothing very substantial is actually taking place. And this is a common example of, of, a, of a problem. So, um, and then also elsewhere in the book, that the longer you're in contact with somebody, it exposes you to a dilemma. It, when you're in that sense, nothing is taking place and you have that dread. Um, how do you, how long do you decide to, to stay there and say, well, how do I know nothing's happening? How do I know this is not just an, an unknown that I need to tolerate for a while? How do you, how do you work with that? Could you call it a, a common problem to, to address? Yes. In, in that chapter, the dread, that's not the dreaded situation. Um, it was an analysis that seemed to be proceeding um, relatively well, although I couldn't say, well, there's a central issue um, that I'm addressing. Um, and then something external happens. I have to tell the patient that I'm going to be moving to the north of England. And hence, unless she also can move to the north of England, which I know was impossible because she was married and had a job and everything else in London. Um, so in effect, I'm telling her that um, uh, her analysis with me will have to end. Um, and I dread telling her. Um, and then she makes me feel incredibly guilty um, and eventually she offers some material which I go to a supervisor with and my supervisor shows me that she is um, trying to control me and threaten me with um, she's threatening that she, with my leaving she will break down and it will be absolutely my fault. And then I dread putting this to her because she has a history of controlling her people, her husband and particularly her mother, by making them feel guilty. And suddenly I feel I'm going to really say something that could potentially um, destroy her view of herself. Um, and eventually, with time, and she offers material which allows me to, to interpret it. Um, so the dread is of saying something that we, we really fear will destroy the patient. And I get, that is a very extreme example. Um, but um, I think it happens a lot of the time. And it links with something else I quote, which is, uh, again, going back to Hannah Siegel and John Steiner's um, um, memorial paper about her. Um, she was his analyst. And he says that, like Freud, she thought facing up to the psychic truth was very, very important. The example I've given, the psychic truth is that um, my patient controlled her people by making them feel guilty and responsible. 
Um, but John Steiner then adds um, that Hannah Siegel could tell you the truth without ever losing a basic kindness. So you never, he never felt that she was picking at him. He thought that she was kindly trying to show him something about himself. And he then said at the memorial meeting, um, truth without kindness isn't true. And then he added, and I thought this was brilliant, but kindness without truth isn't really kind. And in a way, my book is about how do you talk to patients about very painful truths without losing your kindness. And so in that chapter on dread, I think that's one of the places where I use the, it's the patient's prerogative. I, I argue it is absolutely her prerogative to treat me in the way that she treats her husband and treated her mother. And, you know, she's not being horrible to me. She's trusting me to try to find a way of talking to her so she can really understand something about herself. But that it's, first of all, the, the analyst has to work through his dread. And it is a dread, isn't it, about being sadistic? Mm -hmm. And I quote Freud, who compares the analyst's job with that of the public prosecutor. and. It, I think it's it's very important to know that there is a part of us which wants to prosecute the patient for being as they are. That's the sadistic part, because they're they're demanding a lot of us. Um, and while we love psychoanalysis, we'll also hate psychoanalysis for the emotional work it makes us do. And I think that that's the, the the question that goes throughout in all the chapters and the different ways. The question you you start in the introduction with the difficulty of giving thought to hostility, and I think it is brilliantly um, examined in a chapter called "Other Approaches," um, in in which you you demonstrate the difficulty in giving thought to to the patient's murderous hostility um and you there's two there's two challenges the first one is you challenge a view that patients suffer from an inability to represent their greatest fears so what is the, what is the view and then what is your challenge to that sorry can you repeat that you in in the uh, the chapter on other approaches, you say, "I'd like to challenge the view that patients suffer from an inability to represent their greatest fears." Yes, um, that's my main argument in that chapter. Is that, and the editor and I were very cautious about about um, including this chapter. Um, and eventually we decided that it was worth including because I try to take the, the book's argument as far as it will go and maybe I push it further than it should go. But my argument there is that there some theoretical approaches have evolved 
to justify the uh, clinician turning a blind eye to the patient's hostility um, because the um, clinician is worried that it will um, excite their own hostility and sadism. Um, so could it be said, could it be said that these approaches have veered towards kindness without truth? That's a very good way of putting it. That's, that's what I argue. Um, yeah. And the, the, the two main approaches that I examine are um, the um, sort of ego psychology. Um, and I report a, um, a discussion I had with Jessica Benjamin and uh, the a relational psychoanalyst but then I think the thing you started to refer to is the um, the view that the uh, the patient cannot um, elaborate something I think the view is because the the patient's care original caretakers couldn't um, elaborate couldn't use alpha function for to take up the the patient's projections and i only examine material in which the uh, reporting clinician has described their countertransference and so the example of that view that i look at is um, a, an example from the botteas in uh, in france where it seems to me the patient has made a massive hostile attack on having seen the analyst with his partner um, and he's got a complete gap about it um, and the the analyst finds himself saying something about gas chambers but he only finds himself saying it and my argument is that he knows the analyst knows that the patient has annihilated him and his partner, who he saw in the street before the session. Um, but he cannot bring himself to, to know about this. And so he makes this sort of tangential point about gas chambers. But I argue that if he could have realized that the patient had annihilated him and his partner he might have been able to um, to work through it a bit better and to be far more direct and immediate you know it wasn't the gas chambers we're talking about we're talking about what you've done to your perception of me and my partner um, that that's that's the argument um, and um, I think we expected a lot of criticism um, for that chapter. Um, that's why I, um, I only gave examples of um, where the clinician does describe very generously their, their counter-transference. Um, right, and, and you, you write elsewhere in the book that reports of clinical work 
if they include the analyst counter-transference, we might allow for comparisons yes. between different approaches to be made. What's interesting about um, kindness without truth isn't very kind, and to contend with our hostility, aggression, um, you write at one point the elemental force, which has been called the death drive, is a potential at birth. You know, this is we had on on this program back in August, Daniel Nafo, and she was saying that she's looking over, I think, 20, maybe 30 years of literature. And her question is, where has sexuality gone? Mm. Um, it's been gone. And your book is saying, and we need to also return to aggression and dealing with it. And in that chapter, um, other approaches, and then the last chapter, hostility, terminable and interminable, I guess my question is, it feels like that you're saying there's something really at stake here for patients, for for lack of a better term, cure. Um, that if we don't deal with it, we're really missing something. What what for you is at stake in contending with hostility and aggression? I think it going back to the death instinct. I think it is, uh, as you put it, elemental. Um, I think Freud somewhere writes that hate is older than love. Mm -hmm. Right from the beginning, I think we we know what we like and we know what we don't like. Um, you know, in terms of just the way we're treated, but also what we're fed. And I don't think that that basic elemental discrimination and the emotions that go with it ever really leave us um, so I think when patients um, aren't getting better or they're bringing us problems that we don't understand I think a part of us will hate this an elemental part of us that wants life to be as we want it to be and so it's I think it's terribly important to um, to realize that um, and so in that chapter, Hostility, uh, Terminable and Interminable, I describe a, a, one successful treatment of a man who was incredibly hostile. Um, and it was incredibly important for me to register just how hostile he was, to register how hostile I felt in return, and to bear it and be able to show him it um, and what became clearer once we'd registered just how hostile it, he could be was that he was hostile when he felt hurt and suddenly we got a glimpse of vulnerability which he hated but because he hated it for a long time, he'd found it so difficult to form a loving relationship with his partner uh, and, then, and then with his daughter um, because he was vulnerable to his partner and the daughter being together and he would, he would treat them very badly. Um, but when we could understand that it was his vulnerability that he hated rather than them, his emotional repertoire expanded. He became more resilient to feeling excluded, 
and jealous. Um, so I think that helped him understand what sparked his hate and enabled him to contain it a lot better and to allow for other feelings, to, you know, to have some room in his mind. That's why I think it's terribly important to really register hostility and yeah. how damaging it can be yeah. and how automatic it can be for some people. Good. Well, let's... Um... It's wonderful that we end on a clinical illustration of, of what we're talking about. It's perfect to end. Um, what are you What are you working on now or next? I'm I'm in a bit of difficulty actually because um, in my society I'm quite senior and most of my cases are training cases, <laughs> which um, uh, you know makes it very difficult to to write about clinical examples. Um, but uh, I'm very interested. It, it's more of the same. I've, I think we only have one. Well, I certainly only have one good idea in a lifetime, you know, and, and weave a lot of uh, thoughts around it. Um, but um, I'm very interested at the moment, and it does take up some of the issues we've been talking about, is the hold that grievance can have over some people and how they. They live in an aggrieved state of mind and how their sexuality, you know, it becomes almost sexualized and fetishized and how awfully difficult it is um, to work through that and how the analyst, it is more of the same, how the analyst becomes to have a, comes to have a grievance about that particular patient. Um, but I, I've got some some very interesting clinical material. Um, this is one of my patients who isn't a training patient, so that, that's what I'm working on. Um, yes. Good. Well, if it's if it's published, you'll come back and talk to us about it. <laughs> I'd love to. I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for, for giving me the opportunity. Well, thank you for being. Of, of course. And, and uh, just for our listeners, we've been talking to Vic Sedlak. His book is The Psychoanalyst's Super Egos, Ego Ideals, and Blind Spots, The Emotional Development of the Clinician, published 2019 by Rutledge. Dr. Sedlak, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. 